0: Well, we've been working through this letter, and just to remind ourselves that uh, the Apostle Paul is himself a prisoner, yet he's writing to a relatively newly formed church in uh, the city of Philippi. Philippi itself was a city which was um, a prosperous, prestigious city outside of uh, of Italy. Uh, It was outside of the... The the, the kind of what was what is now Italy it was one of those highly recognized uh, cosmopolitan cities and uh, I think it's really interesting that the Christian faith has again and again and again throughout the past 2,000 years reached into places which seemed at the time maybe uh, too, uh, too contemporary, too cool, too advanced for the gospel. And that's interesting, isn't it? Even today, in, in our world, one of the most advanced uh, countries, countries in the world, South Korea, technologically off the scale compared to most other countries, and yet in the past decades, what we've seen as a massive, Increase in the establishment of belief in Jesus as the living Son of God. I, you might find that surprising that in a, a very scientifically advanced age, we find that there are people who are looking at the Christian faith and embracing the Christian faith. Uh, it seems for many people as though science is everything. But what we're going to look at this afternoon, I think, is is a real challenge to many people's thinking. You see, so many people are finding science isn't giving the really deep answers. Not the kind of real personal heart and soul answers. We reach a point in uh, our experience of life in this world... Issues can go on, things can happen, and it doesn't matter scientific advances. We start to face real heart issues. The question that we ask this afternoon is, what have we got when everything is stripped off us? What have we got when we are left with nothing? That's a key question, isn't it? One of the films that repeatedly appears in the, in the top ten uh, great movies down through uh, the past uh, years is the, some of you will see it, some of you might even think it's your number one movie, Shawshank Redemption. Tremendous film, it's just a fantastic film which, which taps into uh, something of that kind of idea. What happens when I'm stripped of everything? It tells the story of Andy, who's wrongly accused uh, of murder. He ends up in in Shawshank, uh, a prison, and he meets a guy called Red. Uh, And uh, the way the film is described, it tells the story of human identity triumphing over adversity. That's the strapline. Human identity triumphing over adversity. There's something kind of deep down which... Which wells up in these guys and in all of the adversity of everything that they face in that prison, they, they finally come out of it, literally, come out of it uh, successfully. It sounds great. The problem is, I know that for many people, that isn't how life is. You know, our being doesn't uh, rise above the issues. What happens when we are stripped of everything? I guess the writer of this letter and why this letter is particularly relevant in answering that question is here's somebody who has been stripped of everything. He, uh, He was a great religious leader. Now he finds himself in a Roman prison. He doesn't know whether he is about to die, literally. He does not know if he is about to die. It turns out, because we're able to know uh, the end from the beginning, it turns out that the Apostle Paul is released. Uh, And he does continue with more uh, missionary journeys. But he is then, once again, uh, a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And he ends up, second time around, losing his life. So what he experiences in this first episode in, the, in a Roman jail is not, if you like, uh, over-dramatizing the situation. He does end up losing his life. Uh, he doesn't know whether he is at this point. He is stripped of everything. But, but okay, he's, he's stripped of everything in the sense that he's facing, he's facing life uh, life and death and the prospect of that being taken from him. But there is more that's going on in this man's life that he realizes in a deeper way than uh, what the, the, the powers and the authorities can strip from him. He's realized that before God, he is stripped. He realizes, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Sinners. He describes himself as being completely unworthy before God. He's stripped of his uh, freedom, his liberty. He's stripped of his possessions. Uh, And then he realizes deep down, he's stripped even of what many of us finally hold on to, which is, if you like, our integrity, Our rightness. That's what Shawshank relies on. What Andy holds on to is the fact that he is innocent. What happens when we're stripped even of that? Because that's what the Apostle realises as he's uh, going through his Christian uh, understanding, his experience, he realises before God... I'm stripped. Even, if you like, the integrity that I might be able to rely on in this world, I do not have. Personal worth, gone. Rightness, gone. The fact that he could rely on, on, at least I'm a good man. You know, I might be in, in prison, but I've done all of this good stuff. He's at the point of realizing, actually, no, even that is gone. You know, there might be people, well-meaning uh, people, who will, who will encourage me by saying, yeah, but Paul, you're a good man. You know, you are a good man. You... And he'd stop and he'd say, well, let me just stop you there and say, I know that it was at my feet that those who stoned Stephen laid their coats it was at my feet that i authorized effectively his execution an innocent man it was by my hands that were people were ripped from their families and put in prison because they believed in jesus but all of that he would say is nothing even that even the badness of that when I look at the beauty and the rightness of God, I realize that, you know what, I might say I'm the chief of sinners, but we're all in the same same boat. What do we do when we realize that? You know, even, and this is one of the interesting things that people, maybe you've not thought about this, and uh, maybe it's something that we need to w- work through, is that... Deep down, even the good stuff that we do, and we can do all sorts... In fact, by God's grace, there's loads of good stuff going on in this world, isn't there? There's loads of good stuff going on in this world. But deep down, even the good stuff that we do is marked by a self-orientation. Famous American playwright Gore Vidal said this... Every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. Every time one of my friends achieves, I feel it deep down inside. I feel, where am I? They've achieved and I've not achieved. He he, he was honest about his condition. What happens when we get to that point, when we realise that even good stuff going on is, is a, an attack on our very being and raises the, 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 the terrible prospect of a blackness deep down inside of here? I want to reflect on what the Bible says in response to that. We go to our reading, we go to verse 8. And we see this. In fact, if we just quickly go from, from verse 7, we can say. Here's the, here's the apostle sat in this Roman prison and he realizes, Do you know what, in the past, there's all sorts of things that I've relied on. I've relied on the good things that I've done, I've relied on what, what I've been, I've relied before God on on all sorts of things, and now I realize whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'd progressed, and now I've got rid of all of it. It's gone. And then he goes on to say this, Indeed, I count everything loss for the sake. Uh, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think they're astounding words that he comes out with there, aren't they? He's at that point of realizing when there is nothing left, when I am stripped of everything. In fact, when I purposely, as he says here, strip myself of everything, I don't rely on anything, there is something which steps in which is greater than all of that. And it is knowing Jesus. It is knowing Jesus. We've got to ask the question, why, why does when human worth fails why does knowing Jesus count for so much why is that so great why is that that steps in uh, and makes it uh, worth uh, and, and brings something of worth well he goes on to say uh, in verse 9 he goes on to say I, I, I want to be found in him Uh, And not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's many characters in the Bible who have experienced this. Maybe we'll just tell you a story of one of the characters in the Bible who experienced just this. His name was Jacob. And uh, he had been throughout his life in relationship to some extent with God. He'd been trying to live his life uh, in some sense, trying to follow as God would have him live his life. And at the same time, right the way through his life, he was trying to shape it and trying to make it work. When he was uh, younger, Uh, He stole from his brother uh, the birthright. Now, for those of us who who are aware of what the ancient history, what that would mean is uh, everything that was his father's would pass to the older brother, and yet there had been a promise from God that the younger brother would have everything. Uh, And Jacob looked at that and he said, how can I get it? How can I make sure that what God has said is really going to happen? And so with in collusion with his mother, he, he tricked his father into giving the birthright to him and, and stripping it of es- from Esau. He lived his life trying to continually force his hand and trying to continually make sure that he got what God's plan was for him. But him driving it all the time, all the time him driving it. He goes away to another party, runs away from his brother, uh, and over a number of years, he becomes uh, astoundingly rich. A huge number of uh, possessions, big family, and a huge number of flock and and cattle and all of that kind of thing. He becomes an incredibly uh, rich man. He starts to come back, make his way back, and the message comes to him. Esau is on his way to get you. Or rather, that's what goes off in his mind. He hears that Esau is making his way towards him with 300 men. Filled with terror. He's convinced in his mind that what's going to happen is Esau is going to bring revenge for that issue of many years ago. Absolutely convinced of it. How is he going to play this one? Right the way through his life he's managed situations and he's, he's ducked and weaved and, but now this time he looks as if this is it. There's no way out. I've got my family with me. I've got my possessions with me. We are a slow-moving uh, community of people with, with young children and my brother's on his way with 300 men. Had it. Reaches a point where he splits up his families into different groups and sends them off. And then he himself, one evening, takes a walk. As he takes that walk, comes face to face with a man. And the Bible tells us that he wrestles with that man right the way through the night. Wrestles with him, wrestles with him, fighting with him. And and then just as as the light is beginning to come up, the man who he's wrestled with all night touches his thigh. And his hip ends up out of joint. I'm not a medic, but I'm told that a dislocated hip is one of the most difficult joints to dislocate. Excruciatingly painful and incredibly difficult to do. Muscle mass all around that area, and yet... Just a touch, and his hips out of joint. He turns to this man who he has been wrestling with, and he realizes, he now knows who he's been wrestling with. And he says, I need you to bless me. He realizes that he's been wrestling with God. It's one of those incredibly rare moments in the Old Testament where Jesus himself makes himself present in this world before he comes into this world as a baby. And Jacob wrestles with God and then realizes, I need your blessing." I think that is a tremendous picture of where we need to get to and where the writer of the letter to the Philippines is encouraging all of us to get to. He's saying this, we we need to reach a point where we understand that we have nothing. We need to reach a point that For all of our wrestling with life, for all of our... Maybe you're doing this right at the moment. Maybe you're wrestling with God. Maybe you're fighting. Maybe you're battling. Maybe you're not seeing life uh, opening up the way you'd hoped it would. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to be. Maybe there's issues that, that are just difficult or painful or hurting. Maybe your experiences are not what you wished them to be, and you find yourself wrestling with God. And the apostle says here, I have realized that when I have got nothing, there's Jesus. He is supreme. And I need his blessing. Just like Jacob, who reached that point of completely falling apart, literally falls over as his hip is touched. The wrestling is over and he is blessed by God. Now as that story uh, unfolds, what we actually see is that the next day, as he limps, towards his brother it works out completely differently to the way that he expected it to be and I would suggest for those of you who know that story in Genesis go back and read it I would suggest that that is the crucial turning point in the life of Jacob where he realizes I've got nothing I bring nothing, I am helpless, but when I have got the blessing of God, I've got everything. I have got everything. It doesn't matter how it turns out. It doesn't matter for the apostle sat in that Roman jail for all of his aspirations of maybe wanting To be with the Philippines and come and speak to them and and encourage them and strengthen them and help them, he's actually able to say. But you know what? I've got everything in Jesus. How does that work out? How can we say that? How can we have that kind of confidence? Look at how how it's described. I think there are a few key words that we see in here. The first key word that we see is that we see the word righteousness. The apostle realizes I need a righteousness before God. I, I, I am stripped of my dignity before God. He knows my heart. We used an illustration at Christianity Explored. I think it's brilliant. Imagine if I had a book of every attitude, thought, motivation, everything I've said, everything that I've done in my entire life. It's a record of me. And we cut the spine of the book and we paste all of the pages on the walls around this room. I'll tell you now if you were walking around and reading the attitudes of my life and my heart and and what I've thought and what I've said and what I've done and what was really going on when there was a smile on the outside, I would not be in this room with you perusing it. And I can say that because I know that none of us would be if any of our lives were displayed. Now, God knows that. He knows what we are like. So I haven't got a righteousness that I can bring to him. But what does the Apostle say here? Through Christ. By being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. By doing all of the good things. The law. I find that through faith. I gain a righteousness from Christ. That is amazing. We sang it a few minutes ago. A great exchange takes place on the cross. My helpless, hopeless being is given to Jesus. And he bears the wrath of God. And he gives me When I am found in him. A righteousness. That means. That even though by nature I can't stand before God. I find that I can. Even though by nature I should be utterly destroyed before God. I find that he welcomes me. So the first critical thing that we find is that we find righteousness in Jesus. But the, the other word that I just want to take us back to, verse 8 he says, there is a surpassing worth in knowing Christ. It's a fascinating word, that knowing, in the Greek. I know you. You know me to some extent. We, we kind of know each other to some extent. Some really well, some not so well. Some because I've just introduced myself this evening. You know, there's different levels, isn't there? We know each other to a greater or lesser extent. That is not the knowing that Paul is talking about. Everywhere else where that word is used in the whole of the New Testament, it is a deep, profound, immersing, in Jesus. It's so deep. It's like a saturating. In Jesus. What is it to believe in Jesus? It's to be saturated in him. To be in him. And everything about me fights against knowing him that deeply. And yet everything. That is, in, that is righteousness in Christ is found in an increasing knowledge of Him in that way. I find a righteousness in Him because I am in Him. I am deeply known by Him through faith. Knowing Christ, I find a righteousness. But even so, you know, what happens when it really is the last? What happens when for the apostle here, a few years later, literally, the sword finally is wielded and he dies? Why can Jesus be that kind of hope? Well, he says it in this text. By knowing Jesus, verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. May share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a mind-blowing perspective on life that is. In simple terms it's saying I can look at death And know that it isn't going to get me completely. I see in Christ the possibility, the hope, the confidence of life. Why? Because that's exactly what He did. He lived, He died, He rose again. Because he lived, he died, he rose again. If I can immerse myself in him, if I can know him in that way, if faith might be my gift from God so that I may know him, then I can live, I can die, I can live again. It actually, as heartbreaking as it is in human terms to lose those who we love, and finally to be separated. As heartbreaking as that is, it is not the end. There is life in Christ. And so we were able to say through this that hope in Him is not constrained to just this world. It brings an eternal perspective. It brings hope in him for all of eternity. Resurrection in Christ. It's as though by being immersed in him, I follow through what he went through. I live, I die, I live again. By being immersed in Jesus. That is why this can be a hope beyond our experiences of this life. How can we know that? Paul experienced it. Jacob experienced it. We can only know this, I think, when we are stripped. When we do realize that we have everything taken from us. I don't mean that we've got to lose everything, lose our possessions, lose our loved ones, lose our freedom. But in real terms, deep down, in our relationship with with God, we cannot fully know Him. We cannot come into that relationship with Him until we realize we are stripped. That's where Jacob got to. He realized that he was helpless and he was hopeless. He's been wrestling against God. It's like a picture of the whole of his life. He's wrestling and wrestling and then God touches him. And then it all changes. The amazing touch of Jesus on our lives is astounding. When we are left with nothing then he steps in. What we see in Jacob I think is what so many people what we experience in our lives. When he touches us we remember it for the rest of our life we remember it for eternity it says that he limped for the rest of his life he's marked deep in our hearts we're marked by an experience with Jesus and yet at the same time there is hope there are many who would go through experiences in life and they would say you know what it's been terrible what i've been through you might be going through it right now you might be going through it wrestling with god and i would encourage you right at this point in time you need to stop wrestling and you need to realize that no matter what happens in the future the only hope that we can really have is in him the one who limited himself and came into this world with awesome power and yet became a human being Who put himself in the place of of, of being destroyed and broken and shattered on a cross. So that he might become one with us and we might become one with him. And at that moment in time when all of the turmoil is going on in life and we realize there's hope in Jesus. It doesn't actually in eternal terms matter how the next days, weeks, months, years, work out. I'm safe in him. We tend, don't we, to understand or try to understand Jesus in the light of the world that we live in. I would suggest... We need to understand the world that we live in in the light of Jesus. It changes everything. What have I got when I've got nothing? When I've got Jesus. Or rather when he has got me. I have got everything. I have got everything. There is nothing more that can be given to me in this world that can ever match knowing Jesus. I can be stripped of everything. It might be that I am. It might be that you are. It might be that you feel you have been. But if you have got Jesus, you have got everything. Somebody recently said, Little five word phrase Christ plus nothing equals everything. It's great, isn't it? How many levels does that work on? Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus everything without Jesus. Equals nothing. (laughs) But when I'm stripped of everything and I've still got Jesus, I've got everything. At that moment when I stand before Jesus as my judge and he says, Why should I let you into heaven? Not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. Because by your grace, I have you and you have me. That's eternal hope. That's what this apostle was able to describe to these Philippians. And he says now, live in the light of that.